Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Negotiation. And on today's show, we are speaking with my friend, Bay McLaughlin, co-founder, COO, and board member at Brink.io, an IoT venture capital fund and accelerator program that operates in developing countries. We discuss why Brink chooses to operate outside the G8 intentionally and how investors they approach to invest in Brink typically respond to this thesis. We discuss fundraising pros and cons for IoT startups and where the use of funds typically go versus Versus the more traditional SaaS or app startups. We also discuss the archetype of a successful IoT entrepreneur and juxtapose the Eastern European or APAC region founders against their North American counterparts. We also discuss the effects COVID-19 has had on their industry and some really cool IoT tech we can look forward to landing in our lives in the next few years. Enjoy. We are definitely looking at teams and scrutinizing cash flows and looking at the types of teams that might be able to last a little bit longer before their next follow-on, but by no means are, are going to stop investing. I mean, there's there's more problems to solve than ever before. And I think that we were, you know, truly hardwired believing that entrepreneurship is the, the biggest catalyst and the, and the biggest, you know, tool we can wield to solve the world's challenges. So we're still all in. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Bay, my old friend, welcome to the show, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks a lot, Todd. Good to, good to be here in the midst of the crazy. Now, you and I go way back. I think I was probably one of the first people to welcome you to Asia and into the startup community landscape through China Accelerator and bringing you in as a mentor. Why don't you give our listeners a bit of your background and what you were doing and have been doing in the APAC region? Sure. So my name is Babe McLaughlin, uh, one of the co-founders uh, at Brink, um, but a little bit of the background. Uh, just really quickly, I always like to make sure to give the context that while a lot of people, you know, give them that kind of, I'm a self-made entrepreneur. I come from this, you know, line of, you know, entrepreneurs and all this other stuff. I, I don't have that background. <laughs> I came from uh, teachers, military, you know, small town, you know, very uh, the opposite of what you'd expect from kind of tech Silicon Valley entrepreneurship. Did make my way out here uh, after my undergrad and master's. Was fortunate enough to get hired at Apple and then joined a few startups, some won, some lost, you know, kind of went through all the tribulations of the early stages of being in tech in your 20s. Then uh, went back to Apple a second time in San Francisco, super fortunate, um, built a big division for them, got a lot of great experience, jumped into kind of the consulting venture capital world, et cetera, and ended up getting married. And that was the impetus in my late 20s to even think about Asia. Uh, obviously, generally interested, but never would have you know packed my bags up out of my very nice cushy life in San Francisco and moved myself to Asia. But my wife, uh, generally the smarter one of the two of us had ideas and, and wanted to move to Asia and have proper 
you know, business and career experience in the Asia region. So had the offer to go to Singapore. She was like, I'm not so sure you're going to like that. It's a little bit more for families. Like, I think you're going to like Hong Kong more. She put in for the transfer at her company. We got the green light. And actually, it was probably just about 24 hours from when we got the offer to when we were packing up our bags and getting ready to move. So it was not my idea, but the had the kind of guts and commitment to say, you know what, if my wife believes in it, let's try it. And then the first day I'd ever actually been to Asia in my whole life, I now live there. So we jumped on the plane uh, and then landed in Hong Kong, as you all know, in HKG and took that bullet train into what uh, I like to kind of jokingly say is SimCity on steroids for any of those nerds, SimCity players back in the day. And then I, you know, lived in Asia for the last six years. Now, I know you spent some time with companies like Apple. You worked with the Peter Thiel Foundation. Give us a little history on your tech background before you came out to the APAC region. Sure. So probably, you know, another angle that I'd like to really open up, because I think a lot of people get the kind of conversation around, you know, this, again, self-made entrepreneur, blah, 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 you know, pat yourself on the back. Also, I think for a lot of us that are not engineers by training or personal, you know, skills like that they've learned on their own, you know, I was a, a business person, sales, marketing, biz dev, et cetera, I have two degrees in accounting and didn't really know how to get into tech, but realized I was, you know, super passionate about it. I was lucky enough to pick up a job at Apple during my uh, senior year in college and kept that on through my master's doing um, just sort of like regional development. They call it the campus rep program. So I oversaw three campuses for them uh, when I was 21, 22 and learned that, you know, there was a whole other side to tech that you didn't have to be an engineer in particular to participate. I, you know, have since taken engineering classes. I've done, you know, you know, basics of kind of web coding, um, but certainly uh, never enough to remotely call myself technical. Although I guess people not in tech, I would be very technical, <laughs> but not compared to real engineers. Um, but it really was in working through, you know, small startups and, you know, being in there in the kind of guts of the first, let's say, two employees. And then next one was a 10 or 12 person employee shop. And then building a division for Apple, like getting into the guts and going to, you know, uh, intercom at, during their series A and building out the biz dev channel for them. Like all of these early stage or large stage companies like Apple that I was able to build a division and I was able to get tons of exposure and manage and work with engineers, but uh, would never by any means to an engineer call myself technical. <laughs> Now, the company Brink, which you are a co-founder of, absolutely fantastic, started out as a hardware accelerator in Hong Kong, and you built it with somebody else who was also a part of the China Accelerator family, Manav Gupta. So tell us a little bit about how you met Manav, how the two of you decided to work together and build Brink. Tell us a little bit about your thoughts on what makes a good partnership and how to identify a good partner based on how you and Manav developed your relationship and built your business. And then let that waterfall into telling us more about Brink. Sure. Well, it's a pretty crazy story. And, and I, I think the more that I work with entrepreneurs, which I've done for the better part of a decade now, um, the more I, I'm fa I am fascinated about these stories. Like, how do you meet co-founders? How does this all happen? I mean, I think the general thing people look for are people you've worked with for many years. I had never met Mon of a day in my life <laughs> or Bashar. So we had ne never worked together previously. 
so the other two co-founders, Bashar and Manav, uh, they had met uh, kind of more casually in, in other kind of party and, and social environments in Guangzhou and South China, but never had done you know, business together either. And so I was just instinctively starting to do you know mentoring like i was working with you through china accelerator or some of your teams i was uh going to loads of conferences knowing that the best way in my experience um was to always sort of just be in constant motion to sort of drum up opportunities that's always been the way it's worked in my life so i was going to you know went all over asia with the 500 startups team. I went you know, up to Shanghai all the time to see you all. I was going to Singapore, Indonesia, Thailand, you know, into China you know, every couple of weeks. And I happened to be going to the Global Mobile Internet Conference or GMIC in Beijing. And uh, one of Manav's last businesses, one of his employees who ran the office for him in Guangzhou happened to connect to me. I think it was on LinkedIn or something. And she ran into me, uh, this woman, Renee, She's now the um, managing director of our China operation. She ran into me and said, "Hey, you're this guy from Silicon Valley with startup background. My, you know, our founder, you know, the, my boss is into this. You should catch up." So funny enough, we kind of met in one of those. I guess you would imagine the the debaucherous uh, KTV karaoke, lots of booze, drinks. Blah 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 nights uh, with no, you know, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, he actually bailed that night. I always like to make sure I remind him of that. He, uh, <laughs> we were going, and then Edith from then Dolphin Browser now 500 was paying the bill, and we were you know ready to have a big one. Kylie and all of us were out, and uh, and he ended up going home that night. I ended up connecting with him back in Guangzhou, and you know, I think it's, it's really interesting topic. Happy to bring it back up later in the podcast or, or at another time, but it was almost the opposite of a lot of the stories. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't know anything about each other. And there's lots of pros and cons to that. I think, you know, probably one positive that is maybe something people can ask themselves as they go through this. And if this sounds like a bit of a, um, maybe a more challenging way to find a co-founder. I just truly had the confidence as does Bashar and Manav in ourselves individually, whether we could see each other as co-founders or see the same vision is something that we had to whittle away at for years. But in terms of just generally having that confidence in yourself to just literally jump into something completely crazy like this without having known the people, without you know knowing the region, the culture, all these things, I think is a good kind of... Um, checkbox in your head if you can get yourself there to go like, okay, if I have the guts to do this, I probably also have the guts and the, like the common sense or the intuition to kind of make my way through and figure out if this is right or wrong. But I just knew that, you know, this made sense. It was, it was very similar business model and, and problem statement and services that we were trying, that I was trying to build in San Francisco, the exact same audience I've worked with my entire career, which are founders. Um, and, and also, you know, so fortunate to have, you know, other co-founders that knew the region that I did not know at all. And as you, you met me when I was really great in Asia. Um, and it was, it was definitely, uh, you know, this kind of circuitous path. It was not straightforward, but I think it was the kind of individual self-confidence and belief that, you know, we were sound in our own, you know, backgrounds, our own people, our abilities, capabilities, whatever, that allowed us to all kind of simultaneously run and jump off this cliff together. Um, if, if we want to jump into Brink, I mean, you know, we've, we've really kind of gone, um, I'm not going to say completely against the grain, but we've really built this business in a very different way. So a lot of accelerators come with funding backgrounds, like, you know, trying to accelerate with SOS fee or hacks, um, or, 
you know, big, big LPs. We, we didn't have that benefit. So we knew that we wanted to work with entrepreneurs because we thought that they were solving the most critical problems in the world. We started out focusing on physical entrepreneurship with both of our first offices in Hong Kong and Guangzhou where the supply chain is. But it's evolved quite a bit now. And, you know, I, I we're very much in, you know, fortunately at this point, almost six years later, we're, we're now in the top 10 early stage investors in the world. So, you know, we're at pretty decent volume, but we're very much like you'd expect uh, to compare us to a 500 startups or tech stars or whatever else. One thing that might be a little different. Um, I mean, we have similar volumes. We run night accelerators. We have five offices. You know, we'll probably do a hundred deals this year. We're 63 staff around the world. Like we're not, you know, small by any means anymore, but we very much focus on the emerging markets and developing economies. Whereas, you know, the counterpoint to that would be like, you know, Y Combinator is 90% North America, right? Um, and then 500 startups and, and tech stars, which certainly are, you know, more like us, uh, they're in that 40, 50, 60% kind of overseas range, and we're 90%. So we're certainly from in that kind of cohort of accelerators, uh, one of the more global in terms of our focuses in the emerging markets, like essentially everything but the G7. But we do all the same stuff. We you know invest you know $100,000 plus per team in the early stages. We run these accelerators in different regions. We have different vertical focuses now. We have food. We do clean energy, drones, robotics, IoT, industrial IoT. And we'll be announcing not only more verticals and more programs, but also more locations uh, and regions shortly. You're Working in and located in developing countries outside the G7, G8, as you said, intentionally, why is that your thesis? And I'm curious, what is the reaction or what was the reaction from LPs, GPs that you brought in, your investors? What did they think? What was their reaction to your thesis of being in just developing countries? Sure. Well, in the beginning, it was tough, right? <clears throat> there was there was no one that believed in a physical innovation, which is we are specializing in IoT, right? It was, you know, I think there ended up popping up. There was, you know, hacks first, and then there was um, us and a handful of other people, all of which have stopped now, you know, except for you know maybe a couple became VCs, but all the other programs have died. Um, so it was uphill battle. You know, we were investing our own money, raising friends and family. Like we we had no institutional backers for the first three and a half years or so. Um, we've been very fortunate to have a bunch of great corporate government, um, you know, and other larger fund of funds that are investing in, in us now and believe in us now. But yeah, it was a real uphill battle for a while. There's no question about it. Um, what's interesting since then is a couple of things have happened. Obviously, with the explosion of sensors from the physical side, we're seeing that that that's becoming more and more understood. It's certainly not sexy like it was, you know, five six years ago with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all that that you know was kind of exploding back then. But from the enterprise side, you know, it, it's pretty straightforward. You know, everyone understands this is the future now. That's sort of a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, five G finally rolling out. So sort of like macro stuff that maybe we're a little bit ahead of, but also give us you know time to make our mistakes. You know, figure out who we are and, and get strong in our own way. Um, but in terms of the LP climate and the general conversation around, you know. X G seven or the emerging markets developing economies or EMDEs. I think it's really hard if you look at the numbers to argue that, you know, any real substantial growth is coming from the G7 anymore. Like a lot of it is actually reversing. Like, I mean, I think you look at a lot of Europe and realize a lot of the economies are going in the opposite direction. So ex-coronavirus, right? Like put that aside. Um, 
all the growth is coming from EMDEs. And if you want to focus more on the impact side, which is a, you know kind of half of our brain, we're always focused on balancing profit and purpose. And it's, it's always really important to recognize like if we could fix all the problems in America from let's just use carbon as an example, you'd only be you know, essentially solving 14 or 16% of the problem. Like you have to go work where the populations are. You have to go work where the growth is coming from. And that, that involves a whole bunch of other challenges, but we're fortunate enough um, to sort of be oppositely designed or engineered from scratch, being multi-language, multicultural, uh, multiple time zones, um, which has been a massive challenge in our early days, but now it's just, you know, kind of the fabric of, of who we are as a business. So kind of digging through these new cultures and the challenges that come with all that, these new economies and, and things that are, you know, kind of popping up with all their challenges is actually, you know, what we're made of and who we are from day one. So um, it's, it's a different world. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's going to be remotely as big as Silicon Valley and all this other stuff. Like that's a completely different topic, but it is uh, very much an open conversation. LPs are very interested in open and, and, and understand the data. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of this happening. And I think it'll be really interesting to see kind of how the landscape will evolve. Um, I think we saw, you know, YC, you know, came out of U the U.S. trying to go to China, pull back, right? And you've seen uh, a couple of other companies try to do this, but really, you know, Techstars and at least in 500 startups at SOSB, like there's only a handful that have really figured out international um, with any sort of, you know, kind of longevity. Um, it's still, it's still early, but there's, there's, there's a long way to go. Is there a founder persona or archetype that you have formulated or put together or frameworked that you guys look for? for Brink startups to invest in, people that have the right background or level of experience that you believe or have even some proof to show that they are going to be successful or have a high chance of being successful in building IoT? Is that a special archetype or persona that you look for? I think all of the same sort of truisms as you'd expect in venture investing still hold in IoT. Meaning you're always going to have the outliers, the 22, 24, 25 year olds that come out of nowhere, you know, that are scrappy and just figure it out somehow. They're just sort of destined to be good founders and they just have to put the, the years under their belt to go, you know, and take their lessons on the head and and figure it out as they go. And I don't think IoT would be any different, you know, it's more complicated, you know, you and I both know that anything physical is inherently orders of magnitude more complex than software only businesses or service only businesses. Totally true. But, but the, I would say that when you talk about age, we certainly have seen um, that there is experience from older founders that come from physical supply chain heavy businesses. And even if they're not IoT, they could be food and beverage. Just anything that has a supply chain element to it um, and people that have that experience, they're just in instinctively going to understand and be able to make decisions using a, a lens and a framework that they've learned in their career prior to account for those risks, to understand the types of relationships, the, the way that they have to build their cash flow and their financial modeling, the, the kind of general approach to running a business like that. Whereas younger founders, because by definition, they don't have the years, um, it wouldn't matter what they came, like what their experience was, but they certainly don't have those years of experience, you know, working in a physical supply chain heavy type of operation. So 
there's, you know, all the kind of, um, I don't know, like naivete that comes with growing up in this very Silicon Valley uh, software as a service driven kind of narrative, you know, from the media that we've had, you know, just like a megaphone at the top of a mountain for the last 15 years and like just piling in a single direction. Um, and so uh, we do see a lot of, you know, quote unquote, older entrepreneurs, but it's not just because they're older, they're better. We generally find that the ones that come for, for the IoT investments that we make, that those that come from that supply chain background, it, it's just, a, it doesn't, it's not a trump card, but it's a no brainer, right? You don't have to, you don't have to teach these things. Like they instinctively get all the stuff that you try to explain to a founder that hasn't come from that background that they challenge probably because you know they're hardwired to challenge as founders that's normal that's how we all are but i always like to say you know we're challenging physics right like this is these are the rules of the world and you are not going to bend the global supply chain as we can now see with you know covid-19 mm-hmm. you can definitely tell that like these are rigid just because you're america doesn't mean you get what you want when you want it it's a supply chain like mm-hmm. it is not flexible and and so i think that that's those are two dimensions to think about but i would i would argue that in in, in our five years and you know 110 investments in the space i can tell you like we we definitely don't see any different truism that doesn't stand for any type of investing like you'd want to be investing in you know a enterprise SaaS founder that comes from that b2b biz dev world in that vertical right that would make sense too right um so yeah i don't think it's it's necessarily specialized for iot any notable differences between the Eastern European or Asian or Eastern Asian uh, startup founders and entrepreneurs versus the North American ones? Yeah, tons. <laughs> that, that's, that, that's probably its own entire podcast. Um, okay, possibly. I, try, to, yeah, try to shave it down a little bit. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think this is probably, you would, you would know this in a way that, you know, mm-hmm. I've only you know, experienced in, in my thirties, but if, even though I had traveled and I surfed and I'd studied abroad, whatever else, like I, I go places, it's not the same, right? Like when you go work and live somewhere in another culture or you're investing in building businesses with people from other cultures, I think that's pretty much only when you really can understand like how different it really is. Um, and I, and I, and I do think it's, you know, I can sit here and, and explain, you know, my years of experience and all the different founders we worked with, but it wouldn't matter unless you've experienced yourself. Like you can't possibly understand it. Like we can talk about China until we're blue in the face. And unless someone gets on a plane and goes to China, like it doesn't matter. Right. Like they're never going to understand it. Like it's just theoretical. And so um, I, I, I think that the, the things that I have learned that are probably, you know, easy to understand, but probably not, you know, you won't instinctively or intuitively understand until you go do it yourself is that the North America in general, like in, in Western Europe, like for whatever reason, like we just truly can't understand how big the rest of the world is and how culturally different and how, you know, I'm not going to use ethics in the negative, but ethics in the positive of like, like right and wrong are fungible. They are not these absolute things and people's value systems are very different. And so when we invest in our India office, let's say in our Indian teams, like they run a completely different frequency than our teams from Indonesia run on, right? Which are completely different than our teams in Singapore uh, or Poland or Bahrain. And they're all, there's so many pros and cons, right? Like it's, it's just, they're completely different for all the good reasons. Um, it does make it challenging in terms of how you design your support services. Um, 
and how you build a, an ecosystem around them, uh, which has to be somewhat specific to the, the, the location and the culture and all that. Um, but they, they definitely, I, I think generally you and I would both agree, and I've said this a lot, that most North American, Western European founders would uh, greatly benefit from realizing how many lessons can be learned from, you know, founders in Eastern Europe, the Middle East, you know, Asia, Southeast Asia, um, because everyone else in the world is looking up to North America, Western Europe already. So that's already expected. They're already learning all our lessons, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think we definitely aren't turning or historically have not turned kind of an open mind more in that direction and see what we can learn from founders in the re those regions enough. I want to ask you about investment for IoT. When entrepreneurs, founders, startups in the IoT world are raising money, are they raising different amounts for different reasons? Are they targeting a different kind of investor? And are they using the money for different things when it comes to IoT versus something like SaaS or other kind of software startups? Sure. I mean, again, it's going to be pretty much the same truisms minus maybe one or two different kind of big exception. So we generally, I would say that you're, you're always going to have more money going to longer, more complex R and D cycles when it comes to doing a physical product. And that, that would be the same for anything. You can take you know, the line scooters or jump bikes or, you know, whatever else you see these scooters and, you know, all over their, you know, the cities. There, there's an aspect that you just have to recognize that from when you take your money to when you get to market will be longer, meaning you either have to raise multiple rounds, which is totally fine and very normal, uh, or raise larger rounds. And this doesn't mean you have to raise crazy you know, numbers like you do in North America because the R&D is so much more expensive here and a lot of teams don't know what they're doing and waste a lot of money trying to figure it out. But um, you, you certainly have to be prepared for the investments that you do make to take longer to get to market, that period, full stop. Um, then in terms of who you're in getting investment from, I think it used to be specialized a lot more than it is today. Meaning there used to be like the five, seven, 10 groups you go to the Valley that have you know a hardware thesis or focus. And some of those still exist. But I think people are now becoming more vertically oriented. So if you're going to be investing in med tech, you're generally going to be investing, you know, where there's a component with a sensor or some something hardware related. It doesn't mean you have to be creating, you know, new cascading machines or something. But you know, even if you're going to be doing something more consumer facing or software, there's going to be some some aspect of a sensor that has to get a piece of data, right? So I think we're seeing that trend where people are more focused on what does it take to solve the problem in the vertical that I'm specializing in, you know, clean tech is one of our big focuses or food tech, you know, we invest both in, you know, cellular agriculture, you know, alternative proteins. Uh, but then we also invest in, in tons of ag tech. We also invest in tons of the supply chain of food and things like that. So um, I think that the investor audience is becoming more vertically focused. That's, I think a big trend there is also corporates getting involved. We've seen an explosion of corporate venture capital uh, around the world, but it's, it's definitely you know insane the percentage volume growth over in the developing like EMDE focus, like XG7. Um, and then I'd say in terms of um, the, the kind of, I don't know, the difference of like pitting up a, a SaaS company and then and, and the the IoT company in terms of what that money is going to in terms of development. Um, I mean, I think it, it will, I've been seeing this trend for a long time is that you're seeing a lot more teams being smarter now about 
being able to use off-the-shelf components and technologies that exist and realizing that it is truly the software, their algorithms that are actually going to set them apart in the long term. Whereas five, six, seven years ago, it was pretty much like everyone thought they had to make everything custom. I think that that lesson has been learned for the most part. Um, and investors know that too. They're not as, uh, I guess, you know, excited or dazed and confused by like some sexy industrial design, you know, um, people are happy just to smash in the right sensor from China into a little black box as long as it does what it's supposed to, it gets the data that you need. And then you can show that you can you know, learn and do something or provide a service that's unique uh, that someone else can't because of the software, you know, or the service model that you're building. So um, certainly some changes, but I, but I, I think fundamentally it's going to be, it's a little bit more money, it's a little bit more time, but I don't think that it's, you know, so dramatic that that it's it's impossible to to forecast for. You know, I think it's it's a lot more understood now than it was when we all started. I know from our experience with Hacks, our hardware accelerator in Shenzhen, that we experienced a new chasm that startups had to cross once they had got to a certain point they had done their kickstarter they had had a successful kickstarter but then pinocchio needed to turn into a real boy and needed to turn into a real company they needed to get on the shelves of the best buys and targets and walmarts and usually they were going you know b2b uh sometimes going b2c obviously there's a line there how do you find companies in the IoT world? What is it like for them to go from successful prototype, successful Kickstarter or Indiegogo to becoming a real company? What does that path look like? Well, I think you have to draw the line you were trying, you were just you know touching on, which is the difference of consumer and enterprise. So we started out mainly focused on consumer. Like I think a lot of us got excited about that trend, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And I think you know, we're 80% enterprise now. And it doesn't mean that we say no to consumer or we don't take consumer technologies and they port themselves over to enterprise or enterprise that, that then can become more consumer oriented. I think those lines get blurred a little bit over time. But ultimately, I think that the, the most important differentiating factor that we've ever seen are the teams that realize that they are going to have to weather storms. And, you know, it's interesting now with the, the virus that you see all these people like going through these massive shock waves of like, Oh shit. Like what happens when all I do is lose money professionally at the, you know, for the sake of market share, like as software companies have sort of, and venture capitals have, have, have kind of dictated the last 15 years. And I think what we generally will see, we've seen in our portfolio are the teams that are longer term oriented. They're looking at horizons, you know, three, five, seven years ahead. They're not, don't really care about what the kind of short-term market is doing. They're very bottom line oriented. They're very conscious of cost. They, you know, very much understand, you know, their audience and are happy to focus on a niche and not try to, you know, follow the whims of every angel or institutional investor based on what they think they should be doing. Um, They just are really kind of plodding along methodically and being very, you know, bottom line, old school focused, right? The basics of business that, that that really is going to be whether it helps you pop today or whether a storm like this that gives you a huge leap up later or whether it takes you two to three or four or five years longer than it would have um, for these other kind of more boom and bust investments where they give you tons of money and you burn it all up really, really fast. And maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but you fundamentally have a business model that's not sustainable in any sort of volatility. Uh, it's actually not sustainable anyhow, but 
you know, definitely when it comes to a market like this. Um, I think that that's the difference. I mean, I think if you focus on just consumer and talk about big box stores, certainly any consumer startup that is going into uh, a large vertical like fitness or anything where there are big incumbent players and you don't have just absolutely crazy capital to burn on acquiring users and market share and marketing, like you're done. Like that's, that's the slowest, most painful forever burn that they'll ever be. Um, so if you're, if you're going into that world, like you better raise a bunch of cash because your incumbents just have endless money to defend themselves with. And they would, they're just so challenging. And then on the other side in the enterprise world, I always kind of make this joke that we always talk about in the States, you know, you have the fortune 500 or fortune 1000 or whatever. I mean, think about the scale difference. Like I look at a startup and I'm like, cool. (laughs) What's your end game, right? You want to exit for like, you know, probabilistically, under $250 million. It's like, you know, 90% plus of teams exit for that. It's it like almost no one exits for more, right? Then you, you look at that and you're like, okay, how many companies on earth, you know, in the fortune 10,000 or fortune 50,000 that you've never heard of have 10, 15, 20, 25 million, 30, $50 million, whatever it is in free cash flow or a hundred million dollars in a year. So many you've never heard of all over the damn world. They're everywhere. And so you don't need to care, right? Like you just need to stay focused and do your work, satisfy that vertical customer demand. And in almost any small teeny slice of the enterprise world, there's more money than you could ever, 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 ever need. Like, you know, and and obviously you can grow from there, but I think it, it is when teams try to tackle everything for everyone, you know, a lot of that is pressure from investors or, you know, the media or not having experience and how critical focus is because in hardware, you don't get to pivot, you know, nearly as fast if ever, like you do in software. And then on the consumer side, I think it was a bit of this fallacy of like, you can be this Kickstarter hero and, you know, enter a saturated market with a better product and consumers are going to like somehow give you enough firepower to like take on the biggest consumer electronics companies in the world. Um, I, I think we've seen that that's almost never worked, right? There, there might be a handful ever. So I think there's, there's two, two, two different like ways to look at it, but I, I still think that the fundamentals and the people that just stay tried and true to what they're doing, even if it's super unsexy, no one cares about the market. It's probably even better if no one's looking. Um, you don't, you know, jump at the whim of investors and what they think is cool and what you should be doing now. And you focus on companies, you know, a company that can make money that can survive even when investors lose interest or you have a downturn like there is now. Um, I, I think all of that, you know, will, will put most people in a really good position. And if you're a consumer, I, I actually don't have any data that can, that shows me that you can do anything other than raise a crap ton of cash. <laughs> like, I don't think it's, it's possible if you want to be a big boy, like you said. We're talking about just making a lifestyle business, tons of ways to make like e-com, like Amazon type businesses in hardware and make good, like millions of dollars type of money. But you're, you're not going to ever be a big dog, right? And that's also fine. But that, you can't really do it just by scrapping together, you know, the kind of like whatever self-funded, bootstrapped, consumer sales driven growth. Like that, that's pretty unrealistic. The end game for most VCs, traditional VCs, is that liquidity event, the IPO, the acquisition. And we know that historically data shows us that this is typically somewhere between seven to 10 years in the life cycle of a startup. Is it the same for the world of IoT? 
Well, you're seeing it actually be pushed back really far. So now you're seeing the averages creeping up to 10 and 12 years. And, you know, there's a lot of conversations or, or reasons why that's the case. But um, I actually don't think that there's any good reason that a business that is trying to that sorry that is trying to go after being a market leader would get out earlier because their goal if their their goal is to dominate an entire market you need to give yourself the time if you are like i think it's like 94% or some crazy number like percentage of companies that are going to be acquired in a private you know M&A transaction you know versus the very 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 few uh, that will actually you know become a public company then you don't need to do that so you'll see that those returns or those exiting liquidity events will happen much faster. And I don't think that that's unique to hardware, but you do see those come in that three to five year window. But that's just because they're really focused on the problem. They understand that partnering and eventually being acquired by a corporate that gives them you know, more channels, larger customer base, more resources to continue to solve that problem at a valuation that makes sense for everyone. That's just logical and statistically the most likely thing to happen. Like it's something like, you know, I think you're two thousand times more likely or something crazy to exit at under two hundred fifty million dollars than a billion dollars. Like it's unbelievably different. And so I, I think it's it's something that is not unique to IoT um, by any means. I think it's really how you set up your fundraising. So if you're going for a market domination kind of fundraise, which is really what you know, institutional capital is really for uh, versus, you know, I'm going to go solve this problem and then I'm happy to partner, get acquired, earned out, whatever by a corporate that's going to help me solve that problem at a, you know, faster at a larger scale in a way that's much more, you know, durable, defensible than I could do on my own. That's just the way I, I generally see this, that fork in the road happens based on how you raise your money and who, who, like what partners you put on, on your team. Uh, not so much about the type of technology that you're building. You were in Hong Kong when the riots were happening. You left Hong Kong prior to COVID-19 impacting the entire world. How has this pandemic impacted your world, Brink's world, the IoT startup world? From a supply chain perspective, there was, you know, two, it's, it's all bad, right? There's really nothing positive about the situation. But if you had to find a silver lining for hardware companies in this particular phase, China went offline during Chinese New Year. You know, super unfortunate generally, but also unfortunate. It's, it's usually the only time of year that a lot of the factory workers get to see their families. But there was a window where almost nothing got produced anyways, that the whole world, you know, that's in our side of the planet knows China just goes offline. And that's just what the way it works <laughs> and you can't change it. And so in terms of timing, it didn't really affect a ton. Um, obviously for teams that were trying to, you know, be super, super, super lean from an inventory perspective, we're going to feel the pinch and there's certain SKUs that were stocked out, you know, um, but and this is consumer, right? Because the, the enterprise supply chain is very different and the volumes are much lower. Um, so it's a very different conversation, but it was, serendipitous that that happened at that time. So, you know, knock on wood, you know, we don't have, uh, we haven't seen any, you know, business level disruptions in terms of supply chain. It's all back online. You know, we're getting inventory out of China, you know, already for, you know, new replenishment orders. So that was 
you know, positive if there was a positive, you know, from this side. From the investment side of the world, I mean, there's no question that everyone should be bracing for impact. And in, in a lot of ways, I think we're fortunate enough because we have invested, we started out as investing in physical innovation um, exclusively, and now we have evolved to, you know, biology and, and software and other other areas as well. But this is a a really good lesson. I think for companies that will that'll really kind of shine a bright light on what we talked about earlier, which is what type of business model are you in? You know, are you a get funded to the gills, burn cash to to you know build market share type of business, or had you been confused about your business model and you didn't you know raise enough to actually give yourself the runway to become profitable or break even? Um, because it's very hard, and I'm, you probably read of this too, but it's very hard to thread that needle, if not impossible. Like you need to pick a business model. Am I going for broke and I'm going for market share? Or am I going to be a profitable, durable business? But I might also want to dip into institutional capital and try to sell that story a little bit because most institutions aren't going to give you money if you aren't going to be 3Xing every round. You know, this is just the the basic math of returning on a venture capital fund. So it's, it's, I think, really going to be a, an eye-opening experience for everyone in terms of do they have alignment with their LPs? You know, for groups like us, do you really see eye-to-eye with the people giving you the money that, you know, investing in these types of businesses and looking at being profitable, sustainable businesses that can also have, you know, good exit returns that might take longer, um, they may not be as big, you know, because you're looking at having more, higher volume of exits, you know, at a lower uh, valuation. Um, or, you know, do you have a bunch of your portfolio and maybe even your LPs that are conflicted? You know, like have have you found yourselves on just different sides of the table, you know, by accident or even by design without knowing it? And so, I think that's that's the thing that I'm the most interested in. I mean, everyone will weather the storm, and as we keep saying internally to our, you know our staff and also our founders, is just like anything else, there'll be a moment in time where you know this is behind us. There'll be a moment where this is truly over, um, and we all wish it would it would happen faster for the sake of everyone. But you have to plan as if you come out the other side of this, and that will mean I think a good and healthy look at. You know your your as a founder, your staff, your business model, all these other aspects, um, your investors, everyone, and that that's definitely you know the conversation we're having with everyone, like three hundred and sixty in in the entire ecosystem. And so we're not slowing down in terms of volume. I think early stage uh, investors like ourselves, this like we're the bottom of the funnel, right? Like we build the foundation for all this. So all the other you know, larger accelerators or institutions, you know, feed off the system like us, right? So, so if we massively slow down, I think that would be problematic. We're not going to slow down and we don't see anyone else in our industry, like YC, Techstars 500, anyone else slowing down. So um, we are definitely looking at teams and scrutinizing cash flows and looking at the types of teams that might be able to last a little bit longer before their next follow-on but by no means are, are going to stop investing. I mean, there's, there's more problems to solve than ever before. And I think that we were, mm-hmm. you know, truly hardwired believing that entrepreneurship is the, the biggest catalyst and the, and the biggest, you know, tool we can wield to solve the world's challenges. So we're still all in. 
Let's switch to something much more positive and look to the future. What does IoT have in store for us? What cool technologies, what improvements to our lives can we look forward to? What are you really excited about coming out of the world of IoT in the next few years? Sure. I, I think I think there's a there's a couple areas that I get really excited about um, from like med tech has really popped up as a huge vertical vertical for us which I, that's my particular vertical focus is I, I love and, and spend a ton of my time on the health wellness medical side of, of our business um, I I am not going to say we're all going to sudden you know never die and all that kind of stuff but there is unbelievable technology coming out in terms of like use COVID as an example. I mean, the ability to speed up, you know, FDA trials and things that we used to not be able to do. I mean, we're seeing technologies like one of our investments in in Oakland, where they're 3D printing, you know, human cells to speed up cancer research in a way that, you know, even the Mayo Clinic, which is like one of the top, you know, uh, hospital systems in the United States could have done before because they've been using animals. Like, so the ability to, truly work on solutions that can work at a higher efficacy in humans because we're actually testing on 3D printed human cells versus animals. Um, I mean, that kind of stuff is endlessly exciting. I think on the food tech side, again, still physical, not necessarily a sensor everywhere, but we are seeing some of the, I mean, just the craziest recomposition. Like we're seeing people now building, um, you know, animal proteins on the scaffolding of, of mushrooms, you know, where, you know, it decreases the cost by a hundred X speeds up the reproduction by 10 X, you know, that's the idea that we can grow, you know, animal cells and proteins help feed the, the human population using plants and at a speed and a, and a, you know, reduction in time, water wastage, you know, money, all these things. Um, Certainly, stuff in, in the the food, the kind of general waste systems. We're seeing lots of innovation there um, around the world. We're investing in areas and talking about like you know different types of um, uh, bacteria that are that are you know eating plastic and de- degrading plastic. We've invested in that space recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's. I mean, I keep going forever. It's just, it's, I feel super fortunate. I'm sure you did too. Like this is one of the biggest benefits of my my career. You know, I I, I get to look at thousands literally like takes a lot of time but thousands of new ideas every single year and it really is inspiring i mean it's true i mean we know most of these teams will never get to a like a huge huge commercial scale but just recognizing that people i mean we get applications from 92 countries from around the world and we've invested in 34 countries already like there are people working in every corner of earth to solve incredibly important human challenges and it is absolutely inspiring like there's there's nothing but excitement uh in terms of you know in our business you know even though we know that we won't solve all of them i mean it's just it's good to know that there are people really working on these problems and people are passionate enough to sacrifice better jobs more cushy lifestyles to work their butts off to try to solve these problems for all of us I think I speak for both of us when I say that we are blessed and grateful to be able to play in the big sandbox that is innovation and technology in the world of startups these days. Bay, one last question. What is your best piece of advice to startups or brands or corporations looking to do business in the APAC region? 
it was always from day one and will continue to be that you have to go put boots in the ground. You, you cannot read a book, listen to a podcast, watch a video and expect that you're going to A, understand, but B, really have the respect of people to get work done there. I mean, you can scrape at the surface, but I've never met a person and this includes like the biggest dog VCs, the governments, the corporates, like everyone, doesn't matter, you know, what brand you're touting that just magically shows up in Asia and anyone gives a crap, <laughs> you know, like it's, I, I think it, it is, you know, every business is relationship oriented, but I think in Asia more than any, anywhere in the world is they just know what they've got going on. You know, they, they don't really need anyone else. <laughs> like they're, very self-sufficient. They own the entire supply chain. All the growth is coming from there. If you look at, you know, new IP, you look at like innovation, like it's just incredible. And I think that the the biggest kind of fallacy that I see is that because you're important in Europe or the US that, you know, it matters over there. I mean, certainly there's a cachet to being from Silicon Valley or, you know, from some of the big, big, big tech companies or finance companies or whatever else. But other than that, I think it's you really just have to go. And I think that that's one of the things I've seen a lot of people that I've met make the mistake of like sending that one foot soldier, you know, once every six months or the CEO pops in once a year and expects like that that's going to do anything. Um, and I feel fortunate being uh, naive enough to, you know, just jump on a plane with my wife and just wholesale move my life <laughs> and just show up because I think I probably would have justified some you know, more tactful plan that would have been a lot less effective <laughs> than just jumping on a plane, one way ticket and moving my life there. So um, I, I don't think there's any way you can really fake it. And that's probably my, my best advice is if, if you think it's of any interest whatsoever, you know, just take the medicine, bite the bullet, get on the plane, go, you can always come home, you know, um, yeah. but, but you're not going to outsource learning. Uh, I think we, we all know that in Silicon Valley is one of the earliest lessons is, you have to go learn this stuff yourself. So if it's important, move your CEO. If you're, if it's important, move your CEO. Like the co-founders of you know Airbnb, they sent with their co-founders mm -hmm. to be in in China, you know, for months and months and months of every single year. Like there isn't any other real way, in my opinion, to do it. Bay, it has been an absolute pleasure to uh, know you and get to know you more over the last six years. You are a true gentleman of the industry, and I think I speak for hundreds, if not thousands of people that are connected to you. Thank you for everything you do, all the advice that you give, and all the time that you spend. It means a lot to everybody, and it means a lot to the community, so thank you for that. And of course, thank you very much for coming on our show today. No, thanks, Todd. It's really nice of you to say and, and right back at you. It's been a real pleasure to get to know you over the last six years and uh, hopefully a lot more to come. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.